needs to sit back. The doctor should look at it as soon as possible. It is the way in which we propagate our species. Hot chocolate, extra Christmassy. Hello, and welcome to Casual Trek, a Star Trek ranking review podcast brought to you by the Nerd and Tide Podcast Network and Incredible Tales Magazine. Happy holidays! My name is Marsri Labato, a science fiction writer and a hot chocolate fan. Hi, happy festive times to you all. I'm Charlie Etheridge Nunn, a writer. And a fan of the role-playing game Warmer in the Winter that lets you play a Hallmark festive rom-com in a single session. Each episode, we'll watch stories from different Star Trek shows and rank them on a big list from best to worst. We both love Star Trek, but it's far from our first and only fandom, and thus makes us the ultimate objective voices on such a task. Like the publishers of Incredible Tales magazine, you bastards. This episode, we're kicking back for the holidays, and rather than picking a specific topic, we've both each picked out an episode of Star Trek to gift each other. Will it be a lovely present, like last year's Conscious of the King, which I gifted to Charlie, or a lump of coal, which was that Enterprise episode that Charlie gifted me? Let's find out. <laughs> no, no bitterness or passive aggressiveness. This Actually, no, wait. This is the perfect holiday episode for two Brits, because we're clearly both... Um, drinking something and we're going to be passive aggressive to each other throughout the whole evening making it uncomfortable for everyone involved perfect that is exactly what christmas is all about so charlie you know given that this episode actually will drop on christmas day what will you be doing at this moment in time on christmas day proper Ooh. Christmas these days is just me and my brother. We normally have a nice bit of a walk over to the sea, um, curse the tides, and uh, yeah, have a bit of a wander back, get the Christmas meal together. And by this time, uh, around the kind of time we're recording, probably gently sozzled. Ooh, very nice. Yeah. How about you? Um... Honestly, it's just kind of, you know, it will just be me and Rianne just kind of chilling out, just spending the entire day to ourselves. Um, we're, we're going to be doing a nice chicken this year. And we uh, we have, we watch the, the Christmas specials, like the, the Charlie Brown Christmas, the Garfield Christmas. Um, we watch some of the Jim Henson ones because Rihanna really, love, really loves them, like um, Sesame Street Christmas, which is the only Sesame Street I've ever watched. And it's an episode where um, Oscar the Grouch nearly gets Big Bird killed. Um, the the Jim Henson Christmas, which is like a chaos crossover of the Sesame Street characters, the the Muppets, and the Fraggles, in like a big corporate mandated crossover event where um where the Swedish chef tries to cook Big Bird. Bad things happen to Big Bird in this, but it's all it's all really fun. And this year, uh, for the second year in a row, we're trying our new Christmas viewing. Um, tradition, which is Knives Out and Glass Onion in a big festive double bill of watching uh, uh, Daniel Craig's wonderful southern accent. Lovely. I think, I'm trying to remember whether it was last Christmas. Um, One of the previous Christmases. Oh yeah, I think last Christmas I showed my brother RRR 
And um, (laughs) before that, he showed me Shin Godzilla. So we've got (laughs) we've definitely got a style for our Christmases. Okay, I still haven't seen RRR, but Shin Shin Godzilla was amazing. And I got to see Godzilla minus one last Sunday. And that was spectacular. Well, Mars, I was going to ask. What non-Star Trek thing have you been enjoying since we last spoke? Is it perhaps Godzilla Minus One? No! Oh, okay. Carry on. It's not Doctor Who either, although all three specials have just been released and are amazing. Oh, that'll also be what I'm watching Christmas Day, which is Shuti Gatwa's first episode proper, Ask the Doctor. Oh, God, yeah. I might have to bully my brother into us having that on. It's the only time he sees Doctor Who is if <laughs> if I manage to fall for pressure and um and have it on. Plying with enough whiskey, get him nicely sottled. Yeah. What my wife Rihanna and I have been enjoying have been two separate British comedy shows. One of which is the Goes Wrong show, which we've seen before, but we found the first season on BritBox. And have you seen the Goes Wrong show? Nope, no idea what it is. Okay, um, it is a a slapstick comedy show. It is about a a troop of performers, um, like an amateur dramatics polit- um, drama club, who every week broadcast a 30-minute play uh, to the nation. And every play, something goes, you know, everything is just going wrong behind the scenes, like uh, props break, characters don't remember their lines, the actors who the, char- the characters... The actors playing the characters and the actors themselves are two separate characters. So there have been episodes where two actors had like a horrendous breakup off stage and now pretend to be boyfriend and girlfriend while going through like this really awkward row. It's it's really hard to kind of explain just in words because it is fantastic slapstick comedy and it is just hilarious. Okay. The other thing... We decided to rewatch one of the greatest sitcoms of all time, Faulty Towers. Oh, yeah. We're three episodes in. It's hilarious. It will always be hilarious. And it just makes me even more worried that John Cleese is trying to do, is trying to, um, old man Faulty a new Faulty Towers. Because given John Cleese's, you know, transformation to Crank. It just makes me worried that um, the the show that he will write won't take into account that Basil Fawlty is a monster, and the show is aware that he's a mon- that he's a monster, but is still able to make us sympathetic for him. But all the situations he comes into are due to his own his own prejudices, his own class biases, his his own bigotry, and. Mm his his own small natured conservatism and i feel that any new version he does now will make basil faulty this the one sane voice in this easily offended world of snowflakes that john cleese seems to believe we exist in yeah that is that is a worry with any of those kind of things like i gather fraser hasn't been has ended up not being like that which is good as again Kelsey Graham is someone where um you enjoy Frasier enjoy him as beast and then find out that yeah Kelsey Graham of a man not great wait do, do you enjoy him as beast 
And he was alright as Beast. In in, in X3. Like in, in frankly some dire films, um, he was a, a bright spot. Wait, was he in more than one X film? Wasn't he in X2? No, he just he just turns up in, in X. Like, I think he's off screen. Like, he's on a TV program. He's on a TV yeah. show. And it's not Kelsey Grammer. And then in X3, uh. he's Kelsey Grammer. And then it's oh. Young Beast in, like, the sequels. Yeah. Wait, hang on. Did Hang on. Okay, we need to note this. Because I think I just out-X'd the guy who says he's the X-Men fan in our opening credits of the show. Uh-huh. Do-do-do. Do-do-do. Let's see. Yeah, Last Stand, Days of Future Past. Okay, all right, but he's not an X. He has done two, but yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't in X2. I'll tell you this, much like the cartoon, not seen the films that many times, you know, because it's, it's not the comics, and I'm just going to get rolled up. Man, we are ten, we're, all, we're not even 10 minutes, and already we've reached the, um, the bitter, passive-aggressive arguments. Charlie, can you pass me the sherry, please? Fine. You seem to like drinking it so much. Oh, I do. This is, you know, this is not, this is just for the cooking. But you know what? I'm going to taste that sherry. Ah, damn fine sherry. So, Charlie, what non-Star Trek thing have you been enjoying today? Because we so much want to hear your opinion. Oh, I've got something you'll love to hear the opinion about. I finally what <laughs> You can opinion my ass, mate. <laughs> I've finally finished watching Riverdale. Oh, okay. All right. Oh my god. It's what a show. It's um it's not a good teen drama, but it is it is definitely the most teen drama. It's something where like this final season has been set in the past in 1955 roughly. Um the previous season had a horror movie universe which was created by an act of imagination. And an explosion which made this second universe that would kill, like, it. one of the universes had to die for the other one to still be able to exist. Until Jughead, as Rod Serling-like narrator in the horror one, locked himself in a bunker for the rest of time to be the eternal narrator for that world so it could still exist. While also calling through into the baseline world, warning people of things going on and unintentionally giving superpowers to the main cast. Yes, they had superpowers briefly. And there was a giant angel devil war of celestial powers of good and like this eternal evil that was there to gentrify the town now, but also was there in colonial times colonizing the area and has always been there as some form of evil. And then a comet hit the earth and killed, destroyed it all. And one of the angels was like, well, we're kind of re we're, we're going to reboot the earth. But while we do that, let's stick you in the 1950s, raise your memories. And then basically they've kind of been at rapid pace going through like Emmett Till, Ray Bradbury, uh, Red Scare stuff, EC Comics and the Comics Code's destruction of EC Comics. Like, so many, so many bizarre things. Uh, it's like they did a whole William Castle bit where Veronica ends up running the local cinema but can only get really shitty B-movies in. So she ends up turning it into a whole stunt, doing a The Tingler and stuff like that. 
<laughs> I I have nothing to say about any of that, but fuck. Yeah. Yeah, it was berserk, but in, in the best ways. I can't recommend it because there's a lot of it, but also I kind of can. <laughs> I, I'm almost scared that, like, when my wife comes home from work today, she's going to find me just, like, hunched on the sofa looking like Gollum watching Riverdale. Okay, last question. Better or worse ending than that great 90s teen drama we both watched, Dawson's Creek? Oh, now. Now, so Riverdale ends kind of happily. Like, the four of them, Betty, Veronica, Archie, and Jughead, are kind of in a four-way relationship for a good year or so before going off to live their lives. And they all have fairly nice lives and they die uh, one by one and end up in the afterlife in a Riverdale of their own. And Dawson's Creek ends with Dawson Leary in a hell of his own making, which I think is better. Because that man is just cursed to forever make us a, a uh, kind of teen drama about what if if he successfully got off with Joey instead of what really happened, which was Joey and Pacey ended up together. And I, I want that for him. I want that eternal hell for Dawson Leary. Well, <laughs> there are no words. So anyway, with that with that in mind, um. You know, as is now, I guess, traditional for our second Christmas episode, we each chose an episode of Star Trek to give to the other person as a gift. Yeah, so so what what is this, Miles? It it doesn't look like socks in the wrappings. No, no. Um, you know, after after last year where you gave me that Enterprise episode, which was the lowest ranked episode on the big list until, ages. until the child death. Until the child death planet, which, hang on, um, that episode was, for the folks at home who care as more about the list than we do, Futense, um, which we have noted as Quatermass in the shit. And so, it's not socks. But is it another, is it another future tense? Have I gifted you Spock's brain. You should I mean, here, have the box. Open the box. I will admit, I very nearly, very nearly stressed Spock's brain for you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'll be nice this year. Okay, right. So let's let's have a, a look here. And um, yeah. Oh, oh, Mars. This can't be a bad episode. This is a Deep Space Nine episode. I'm sure it exists bad Deep Space Nine episodes. Like I think there's the one where um Quark has a sex change. Oh yeah, yeah. Hang on. Wait, um, hang on. Check. Just double check. Yeah, yeah. If it is, you've you've got the receipt, right? Oh, oh no. This is this is necessary evil from season two of DS Nine. I wanted to make this is. Uh, my way of apology. After making you read Casual Tech, I wanted to give you a story which, you know, is a detective fiction, has elements of film noir, and is good. So here we go. Some good detective fiction on this podcast. Wow. Okay, it is possible. Let's see. Let's see. So this aired on the 14th of November, 1993 was written by Peter Allen Fields and directed by James L. Conway. And, um, ooh, the UK and US number one hit at the time this aired 
was Meatloaf with I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. Oh my God. What a song. This song, like I I listened to it and I had a hell of a time. Uh, I miss 80s power ballads. And I feel I have to mention a little bit of side trivia about this episode. Um, because when you sent me the show notes and I saw it, I'm like, hang on, that can't be right. Charlie effed up. He was, it was a case of Charlie effed up none. Because wow. this song clearly came out in 1983. And so I messaged you. I'm like, Charlie, are you sure you haven't made a mistake? He's like, no, here you go. So, 1993, I checked it myself. 1993. And I thought, no, I'm sure I remember the song from the 80s. Maybe it was a single and not collected on an album until 1993. Nope. Song came out in 1993. So I asked my wife, Meatloaf's I Would Do Anything For Love, but I wouldn't do that. When do you think it came out? And she said 82. I'm like, no, that's where you're wrong. It's 1993. She's like, what? No. It, it's, surely it came out in the 80s. So I asked, the, I asked the guy at work, who claims to be a metalhead? 1983. And so I just started asking random co-workers and random customers. And I had a couple of people who said the 70s. Most people said the 80s. And um, friend of the podcast, Sean Orange, who I am, I am legally obligated to say doesn't pay for Twitter. There you go. There you go, Sean. Happy holidays. Can you get your lawyer to stop phoning me, please? Said nine, uh, said 1991. So, yeah, I think I kind of stumbled in a weird Mandela effect where everyone kind of seems to think that this song just didn't come out in the year it came out in, which was 1993, and not what I thought, the 80s. Well, its heart is gloriously... Oh. in the 80s it's, it's, uh, it's heart is in the 80s and it's hair is feather, is um, it's hair is nice and big just like it was back in the day it's amazing and the video you can you can see from that everything that Michael Bay will become oh no I, I told Rihanna about, the, about that Michael Bay uh, directed music video and I was like no no and she was shocked like, no he also did the, did the got milk commercials oh wow which is, is something our American our American viewers will know and we'll just know from the back from ads on the backs of comic books in the nineties. Yep. Yeah, that's that's us. Because American pop culture isn't always ubiquitous despite what Americans think. So, um I'd I'd best have a look at this necessary evil, possibly over a span of about five minutes, and tell the listeners at home who I hope are enjoying a nice, cosy Christmas. What exactly this is all about. Okay, you've got five minutes, because that's when the Yorkshire puddings are, uh, are ready. Okay. And, um, okay. And Charlie. Mm-hmm. Ho, ho, ho. So, it's a dark and stormy night on Bajor. One bartender by the name of Quark has a meeting with a dame to kill, or to die for. Mrs. Vatrick has a small favour to ask, and the pair used to get one over on Odo so she knows he can do the job. Five bars of latinum doesn't hurt either. Meanwhile, up on the station, we're having some more traditional Star Trek fun as Odo's been pressured into starting a log, which he's mainly using to vent his hatred of having to keep a log. He clocks out just in time for Quark and Rom to break into an old shop, burn away a wall panel, and find some secret treasure. A list of Bajoran names? 
It's a bit weird. And Quark sends Rom to find a camera to take a picture of them. But a shady goon shows up, shoots Quark and takes the list. Oh my God, Quark's dead. No. We, we come back from break and uh, we've got Bashir in full serious mode, just about keeping Quark alive. Rom's panicking until he finds out he'll inherit the empire if Quark dies. Quark can't be that dumb. He's got to have left it to someone else just in case. Um, meanwhile, in flashback, we get friend of the pod, Golden Cat, who meets Odo and mentions about how he's kind of entertaining the Cardassians with his shapeshifting. And the cat reckons, you know, this is fun, but I reckon you'll make a good murder police. And he has a case in mind. Odo's not keen on the idea, but the alternative is randomly killing 10 Bajorans and hoping to get the right one. So Odo is now on board. The victim is a Mr. Vatrick, and Odo interviews the widow. The cat's weirdly polite to her. Might want to put a pin in that. Uh, she mentions that her husband was having an affair and the mistress probably did this. Who was the mistress, you ask? Why, none other than Kira Narice. Yes, and in the present, Kira's heard about the list and asks if this has anything to do with the whole Vatric case. Odo decides to grill... Odo decides to grill Rom, who's already calling the bar his. After some pressure, Rom does remember one of the names, Chessero, which is spelt so much worse than uh, than it sounds fair. Anyway, flashback again. Odo sits with Kira and she thinks that he thinks she's a sex worker. Um, he grills her about Mr. Vatrick and sure, yeah, he fancied Kira a bit, but nothing more than that. She asks why Ducat appointed him and says, you know, some point you're going to have to choose a side one day. In the present, Odo meets Mrs. Vatrick on Bajor and asks about the list of names and mentions offhandedly that Quark's alive. That surprises her. She also has a sudden influx of money, allegedly from a married friend she doesn't want to name. So let's not bring it up. Quark is just about holding on to life at this point, just to spite Rom, and guards are put on his room just in case. Kira has managed to find Cesaro and he's dead. Drowned in a pond. Oh dear. Um, meanwhile, in flashback town, Odo meets Quark for the first time in a fun exchange. It's first meetings all the time now uh, for this, which is kind of charming. Kira was apparently auditioning for a job, but Quark overplays his seediness with it and then quickly gives up that she paid for an alibi and not enough, in his opinion. The cat shows up asking if maybe there's an answer yet, and loving how obstinate Odo's being to him. He can't get enough of it. In the present, Odo's been spying on Mrs. Vatrix's comms, and she's been calling in markers, getting money. It looks like she's been blackmailing collaborators, and that's enough to bring her in. The shady drawn from earlier overhears this. And back in the flashback, Kira admits she was lying, and says, okay, Fine, she was off doing stuff. She was doing sabotage to the station that she's in the Bajoran underground. The cat pops up to ask about her and Odo says, very specifically, she didn't murder Mr. Vatrick and admits for rest. In the present, the shady guy stabs his way into sickbay, smothers Quark and Odo bursts in and stops him after hearing Rom's screams. And then Rob 
Rom screams again after being told that he's saved Quark. Mrs. Vatrix brought in and says, oh, she never saw the shady guy before, but she's phoned him and sent him money. He remains unnamed through all of this, so shady guy and Mrs. Vatrick both end up in prison. Um, she says she didn't kill her husband, and Kira knows, because she did it. Oh, my God. Twist. Ooh. Oh, yeah. so close. So close. Oh, my. You know what, Charlie? Yeah. I, I, I could give, I, I might, you know, because it's Christmas, season of goodwill and all that. Mm-hmm. You can choose to stop now at zero seconds because you pretty much summed up the story or, or do you want to finish the synopsis and have the minus be on your tally it's all right it's all right i've i've started so i'll finish okay and you can carry ho ho on yeah so um yeah kira did the murder oh my god she found out that mr vatrick was a collaborator and murdered him while mrs vatrick needed the money and was blackmailing the other collaborators who were on that list from earlier. Odo realises that his whole reason for being hired was just to keep the cat at arm's reach from the uh, collaborators, and realises Kira was a lot better at lying than he thought. Will he ever be able to trust her again? We fade out on silence, but the answer will be yes, of course, we've got like five more seasons. Then. 40 seconds. Okay, yeah, 40 seconds isn't too bad. Not bad. So, yeah, I... I have a question for you. Yeah. Have you ever had to write a handover at a job? Kind of, yeah. Um, Not necessarily in a written form. I've generally introduced people in person to it. Okay, because I, I admit I have... I've had to write many handovers in my time at Starbucks. Admittedly, none of them were as passive-aggressive as Odo's amazing... Oh my god. Here's my log. I think logs are pointless. Here, Here's my report for the day. Everything's fine. Fuck off. I just, I hope that every single day it was that. You know? Odo's log, like, day 240, everything's fine. Fuck off. Logs are pointless. I, I think the most passive-aggressive one I ever wrote was mm. a Saturday night when we it went um, the clothes went so bad because we were so far behind. Um, what was meant to be we get out, I think it was either 10 or 11, I can't remember, um, went into Sunday. And once we hit Sunday, I was like, okay, we are done. Whatever's not done, it's fine. I, my handover wrote, it's now Sunday. If you have any problems about what didn't get done on Saturday, I just want you to know it's Sunday now. I'm going to bed. Yeah. Love Miles. Oh, well, at least you ended with, with some love there. Yeah. Yeah. Passive-aggressively meant love, but still, you know. I'm British. All love is passive-aggressive. Yeah, again, it's Christmas. It's the time for passive-aggressive love. Yup. Um, okay, this is probably one of my most rewatched episodes of DS9, and definitely a favourite of mine. Um, yeah. What did you think? And they really rip off the plaster of introducing Odo to everyone in this. It's fascinating to see because you just kind of assume these people are all floating around each other. And there's not a need for, you know, this isn't a prequel no. or anything. A kind of, how did these crazy kids all meet? It's just a feature 
of it, which is good because far too often in those kind of stories, it can feel unnecessary. Anakin Skywalker meets Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, yeah, the origin of Han Solo's lucky dice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any of those, the, the dark origin of Poirot's moustache. <laughs> uh, the dark origin of Poirot's moustache. But yeah, this was this was a good fun one. I feel without the flashbacks, there wouldn't have been a huge amount there. Like the the solving of the case is very much we live in a place with open enough information for security people to go. I can monitor all of your incoming and outgoing calls. I can monitor, like not necessarily listen in on them, but I know who you've called. I can follow the bank details. Mm. I know how to do all this. And it very easily points me to you done this. Yeah, like um, I I know we brought this up in the in the previous episode um of Tech War where Ed Brubaker said in one of his art in one of his like articles back from his comics that whodunits aren't always about the mystery; it's about like the characters and it's about yeah. the, the secrets they hide. And I really think this exemplifies it beautifully mm. with like the main framing device of the Vatrick murder. And then just um, allowing us to then see the backstory of Odo first coming to the station and how much of a different character Rene Aubergenois plays him in the early flashbacks, where he's very quiet, unassuming. He's we're we're used to Odo kind of being the very gruff, but you know, gruff but oh, but fair police constable of the present day. So to see, and the thuggy is in crossover when Odo fucking explodes. So it's just really surprising to see him just kind of be a very mumbly character, like, yes, no, where you've got Ducat clearly trying to, like, poke him by bringing up the Cardassian neck trick. And Odo's like, yeah, sure, why am I here? I quite like that that is the case. Even so, we don't get... Odo still manages to turn an amount of that into an advantage, you know? He still manages to keep... to get people talking, even though he's not got that confidence that he has in the present, where he knows that he can pretty much rough up anyone and it'll be fine. We didn't see much of Quark, but we did, we did get a good feel of him with this, both with the dodgy stuff at the start and the the flashback. And I loved, I loved that Rom, of course, Rom has had to pick locks, had to break into places because he'll get blamed for not having access to them, but he also hasn't been given access to them. Um, yeah, so that was fun. I, I love seeing how Quark code switches in the flashbacks where the Cardassians control the station, he is very much the kind of sleazy, kind of like the pilot episode where he's much more sleazy and he's very much like, yeah, I sell, I sell um, holo programs for sex. Gas composed to like the much more friendly, like everyone comes to Quarks in the present day. But then you also get the hints that he still had that where Vatric, Mrs. Vatric mentions that she, he always gave her a little bit extra tea. Mm. So you see just how Quark is able to prosper in these two very different situations. Yeah, well, you have your very two-dimensional view of Ferengi sometimes and how they how they act, especially in the TNG era. And it's nice seeing, even though you've got the same philosophies and the same things, how, how they adapt, how they evolve, how they still manage to be fundamentally them 
But yeah, when you're having to work in a place that is occupied by, by Cardassians, that's going to be quite a different thing, you know, to be able to survive all of that. He may not have had as rough a time as, as the Bajorans on the station, but still, you know, you're under a lot of pressure there. So, Miles. Yes. Have you ever hidden or uncovered anything in a wall? In When I worked in a hotel, there was definitely some rooms which weren't in great state of repair because they're mostly being used for storage where there were holes in the walls covered by mattresses where people had shoved empty cans of red bull or whatever that they had been drinking on the sly wow i once or twice in jobs i have hit i have hidden at starbucks um they have like stop electric timers going on to tell you when coffee needs to be rebrewed or whatever and once or twice i have hidden them in places where they'll go off to be most annoying like taken three or four set them to different times and then hidden them around the store so they'll all go off in sequence and whoever's on duty will have to find them i sometimes have dabbled in being a dickhead Really? During the, during the time at Starbucks, much like Quark, I had to adopt very different personas in order to survive. <laughs> One of those personas was a dick. Oh, God, yeah. My my work persona can vary from Cheeky Cockney Chappy, as played by Eric Idle, to John Cleese's Basil Fawlty, I'll be honest. Wow. Okay. <laughs> a wide and yet still somehow kind of narrow margin. Yep. I'm so surprised I haven't gotten as much trouble at work at, in jobs as I... As I should have done at times. Ah. Okay, I know Odo is not your favorite character in DS9. Yep. Given, you know, given how Odo acts sometimes, I get it. I did like how in the in his narration later on, he, he mentions that Justice is blind. But at the same time, in the flashback, even when he finds out that Kira is the collaborator, he doesn't hand her over to Goldicott. Yeah. So even so, we even then we see a character who considers himself uncompromisable. He's very much like Judge Dredd, in which yes, he's a bastard who plays by the law, but he at least he at least follows the law and tries to do what the law says instead of letting the law be fluid enough to justify loose morals. We see him compromise himself very you know early on. Well, yeah, seeing him. Like, the way in which he very statedly says that Kira didn't do the murder and doesn't shop her in for being part of the resistance feels like a really nice touch. And that thing of he wants to be lawful neutral. He wants to be just an arbiter of the law and that's it. But the law can't always work and won't always work. I think that his character is very much inspired by... You've seen Casablanca, right? Many, many years ago. I, I think he reminds me very much of the Claude Rains inspector in in Casablanca, who is I think he's like a French or a Bel or a Belgian police officer who is stuck having to deal with these goddamn Nazis occupying the town, and he's very much trying to keep the peace. He's trying much to be the middleman. He's he's leaning on on he, he's leaning on on Humphrey Bogart's character Rick and just trying to make things easier for everyone but at the at the end of the day he still turns around and shoots the evil colonel at the end yeah. and then just lets Rick get away scot free well yeah that's definitely the kind of i can definitely see how that's a direction that uh that this odo goes in you know cuz yeah he was a collaborator but there are lots of asterisks after that 
you know again like with quark there was an amount of we're just fucking trying to survive yeah you know like he's collaborating with the cardassians but i get the sense that he's also trying to make sure as few bajorans get needlessly yeah. diced in the cross in the crossfire of their cruelty as possible it's just a case of how far is pretend to be a collaborator to these people going to affect you and that's definitely i know that comes up later on the show when the Cardassians retake Deep Space Nine and Kira has to find herself working with the Cardassians and the Dominion and, you know, how that presses on her. Mm, it's it's just such a good show for that. Yeah. Show. You know? Um, yeah, speaking of how good a show this is, we should probably rank this on our big list of best to worst, which currently sits at 79 entries going all the way from our, the number one star trek thing on our list which is star trek 2 the wrath of khan which yeah i mean yeah it's it's wrath of khan wrath of khan if you've not seen it go and see it it it's pretty good like it's uh, it's way to to the top of this list around let's see so 79 so yeah around the halfway point we have um the least dangerous game from lower decks where boimler ends up hunted kind of unintentionally consenting to being hunted in a most dangerous game kind of situation and then at the bottom as mentioned earlier we have strange new worlds is lift us where suffering cannot reach with the group walking away from a child-killing machine, what makes a city fly. So, we have very few DS9 at the bottom of the list. Our lowest is the still very good fun Move Along Home, which is in place number 62. Okay, it, it's it's Christmas, so let's get one more Alan Moraine out of our systems for, for good measure. On a count of three, one, two, three... Alamorain! Alamorain! Oh, 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 move along home! I am the Alamorain of Christmas past. Yes. So. So, oh. I... And of course, our, our top spot for DS9 is number two on the list with Emissary. I mean, this, this is good. It's, it's not Emissary. It's not Emissary. Like, as much as I love this episode, mm. it's no Emissary. I think it's a good one. I. Let's look at the list. Um. Okay, The Conscience of the King, my previous Christmas episode. Better is this better or worse? I am I can't be objective in it. I can't be subjective in this because they're two of my favorite Star Trek episodes. What do you think? See, they're both good. Oddly enough, both of them give us some glimpses at different sides of of it all, you know. We get some nice some nice looks at the Enterprise kind of out of hours. And all that with conscience for King. I think I might prefer Necessary Evil. Part of it may well be the noir of it all. And yeah, getting to see some flashbacks which are interesting and tell their own story, but also act as good kind of introductions for characters to each other. Okay, so above that we have Q Who, which is number 12 on the list, um, TNG episode, season two, episode 16 which introduced the Borg, 
Yeah, because I mean, at that point, you're getting some lovely horror. You're getting some good horror. You know, like, Q Who definitely gives us really good horror, whereas I think this gives us a really good kind of film noir, Chinatown, uncovering the corruption. Yeah, it just needs Odo with that little plaster on his nose. Yeah. <laughs> That's him trying to blend in with the Bajorans, which is, he just has the plaster over his nose and like it's just drawn on in like um in Sharpie. So and the thing is, like Q Who had some fun Q shenanigans and the introduction of the Borg is more big, more groundbreaking, I think, than getting the introduction to the uh well, the kind of introduction to the earlier incarnations of the folks who were on the station. And Q Who also gives us that great moment at the end where they survive by having Picard how to admit, no, I'm I'm scared of the situation that I am not prepared for. Mm. You know, you have you have Picard who's always very much a kind of like the stand the stand up unfazed, unraffled unraffled? Unrattled character. Yeah. Basically having to go, Q, I'm fucking scared that they want to stick metal things in me. Can we go home now, please? I think all three of these episodes show us really good facets, all of the central characters. We definitely see Kira when she was younger, when she was in the Resistance, and Odo slowly becoming Odo. So I definitely think this would probably fit in really nicely between both. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a a good shout as a place for it uh, to live. Because, yeah, this is another damn good episode, DS9. But yes. Between a damn good episode of TNG and a damn good episode of TOS. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Excellent. So that puts it at our new number 13. God, I remember a long time ago when 13 being the place where Cat's Paw would be. Oh, yeah. All right. So, Miles, I've got this for you. Oh, I like the wrapping paper. Unlike last year's where the wrapping paper said, fuck Blake 7, it says, um, Blake 7, eh, come see, come sa. So clearly you got this in Paris. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's also a hatchet in there that I meant to bury, you know, for Blake 7 enmity in. But... It, it also says in the back, written in Sharpie, I don't like or dislike Blake 7, but Miles needs to stop bringing up hashtag Blake's boys. Oh dear God, so help me, otherwise I will... Stop bringing up casually lost as an idea. I mean, one day, <laughs> once our five-year mission is done. <laughs> God, what what horrors! So I know it's a pretty big label. It's it's probably bigger than the present itself to put all of that on. But uh... Uh, okay, all right, okay. I am just going to unwrap, unwrap. Oh, sorry, I'm not gonna wait. Why, Charlie? It's an episode of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, luckily it's not the same episode of Deep Space. Um, it's called it's called Move Along Home. Wait, we've done this one. Oh shit! Oh, we have, haven't we? We have. Okay, all right. Okay, it is far beyond the stars. Deep Space Nine, season six, episode fourteen, aired eleventh of February, nineteen ninety-eight. Teleplay by Ira Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler or Beimler. Story by Mark Scott Zersey and directed by Avery Brooks. The UK and US number one hits were the UK Aqua with Dr. Jones. Mm. A lot of fun. That was that was a bop. And Janet Jackson's Together Again, which 
Oh God, I had so much fun. I, it's it's a song I have not thought about since the late nineties, and yeah, it it awoke some kind of nostalgia that wasn't that I didn't know I had there. It was it was a nice time. Yeah, um, this was really fun pop music. Like Aqua's, Aqua's okay, but like together again when it got to the chorus and i realized what song we were listening to i was like yes yeah this is real music (laughs) (laughs) oh it was a a joyous experience discovering that because yes like you i had that moment of okay and i you know this is fine but what is it oh it's this one it's this song yeah okay so if you want to recap this bit for us before uh, Krampus comes. Ah, yes. Oh, Krampus. Mm. All right. Okay. I've got my show. I've got my synopses. So, ho, ho, go. Oh, that one's much better. All right. Benjamin Sisko is having the dark night of the soul. One of his closest friends, Captain Quentin Swafford, was lost along with his ship, the Cortez. In, in battle, and Sisko is wondering if he should resign from Starfleet and let someone else bear all this goddamn strain. His visiting father, jo- Joseph Sisko, tells him that he'll understand, but he should really think about it first. Sisko gets distracted by a man wearing a suit, like a 1930s suit, um, walking past his door, but no one else saw anything. Later, when he's on a date with Cassidy Yates, Sisko sees a man who looks strangely like Worf out of makeup, dressed in a giant's uniform. And that's a that's a baseball team, by the way, Charlie. Okay. Um it's very it's very popular over here in um the colonies. Kinda like cricket? Um it's like cricket, but you know, not as boring. Wow. And um, this guy in the giant in the uh, not cricket uniform walks through a door. Uh, Cisco follows him, and the door immediately pops him out in 1953, where he promptly gets hit by a taxi. At least he wasn't in Madison, Wisconsin. People can't drive for shit here. Oh dear. Oh dear. Back on DS9, uh, Bashir detects some weird brain readings, similar to an experience Cisco had last year concerning the wormhole prophets, which was giving him visions. Bashir hands Cisco a pad, which in Cisco's mind turns into an issue of Galaxy Magazine, which is one of the most prestigious pulp sci-fi magazines of the era. Uh, it gave us Robert Heinlein's The Puppet Masters, The Demolished Man by Alfred Bester, Repent Harlequin Said a TikTok Man by Harlan Ellison, and the short story which is going to be revised into Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. And Ellison, we'll, we'll get back to him someday on this show, and Benjamin Sisko is now Benny Russell is a struggling science fiction writer. He's a struggling African-American science fiction writer working at Incredible Tales magazine alongside Herbert Russoff, Albert Macklin, Kay and Julius Eaton, all working for editor Douglas Pabst. And they all look like or look like human versions of Quark, O'Brien, Kira, Bashir, and Odo, respectively. Pabst hands out artwork for stories to be written up for. And Benny is entranced by one that is of a space station, which looks like a more 1950s Earth Zerust version of Deep Space Nine. Pabst also announces that they're going to have photos taken of some of the writers. And so Kay, who is a woman, and Benny, who isn't white, should stay home, much to Benny's frustration. Um, 
Benny pushes to, about, about why he can't be his photo can't be shown in the magazine, and perhaps his family says, as far as the readers are concerned, Benny Russell is as white as they are. After work, Benny is stopped by two cops who look strangely like uh, Gold Cut and Wei Yoon, but again, out of makeup. Man, a cab. Um, they bully Benny, believing him to be a janitor and a thief, but they let him go this time. Outside his apartment, Benny is stopped by a street preacher who looks like uh, Joseph Sisko, Ben's father in the future, who tells him to write the words of the prophets. And his, in his apartment, Benny Russell writes a story. A story about a man called Captain Benjamin Sisko, Captain of the Space Station Deep Space Nine, and Captain Benjamin Sisko is very much not white. When he's got the story finished, Benny drops in on his fiancée Cassie, who looks like Cassidy Yates, who wants him to drop out of writing and work with him at this restaurant. They can try and build something worthwhile. Benny just doesn't want to. His heart is on being a writer. And he meets Willie, who is a black baseball player who looks like who looks like Worf out of makeup earlier. And uh Jimmy, who is a street who is a street kid who is sometimes on the bad side of the tracks. Uh Benny won't quit though. He wants to be a writer no matter how hard it is. The magazine staff love the story, but perhaps won't publish it. A Negro space station captain just isn't believable, but he will publish it though. Benny just has to compromise and make the character white. Benny won't do this, since that isn't what he wrote, even if that means compromising a really good sale. That evening, Benny once more encounters a preacher who tells him, walk with the prophets, brother Benny. Write the words that will lead us out of the darkness and onto the path of righteousness. And so Benny writes six more Captain Sisko stories, much to Pap's anger and frustration. Macklin... Oh. Oh. Oh, much to the anger and frustration of the timer. Oh, well. Well, actually, yeah, you got further in than I thought with that. But yes, right, and go. Macklin comes up with a compromise. Make the, sto- the first story a dream um, being had by a poor African-American who's dreaming of a better life. Paps agrees, and so does Benny, seeing this as a worthwhile compromise just so he can get his story published. Celebrating the, st- the celebrating the sale, Benny and Cassie go out dancing, but tragedy strikes when the two police officers from earlier uh, found Jimmy apparently trying to break into a car and shot him dead. When Benny tries to push past to get to Jimmy, the cops start beating him savagely, um, turning from two police officers into into Goldicott and one of the Wayunes, respectively. I think there's a message here. Weeks later, now walking with a cane. Benny goes to the offices to see the newly printed issue, Incredible Tales, which will contain his story. Unfortunately, there is no issue. The publishers had the entire run of the magazine popped because it didn't meet their standards. Benny asks them, what was the problem? Was it the art, the layout, or the fact that there was a story in the magazine written by and about a man of color? Oh, uh, by the way, Benny, the publisher called and says, you're fucking fired. But you can't fire Benny. Benny quits, emotionally breaking down in front of them. No matter what the publishers do, they can't destroy an idea. They can pulp a story. But the world of Benjamin Sisko, the world of Deep Space Nine, still exists in his mind and his heart. And that makes the idea real. Collapsing, sobbing to the ground, he gets put in an ambulance and driven away. In the ambulance, the preacher is there, telling Benny that he is both the dreamer and the dream. And Benjamin Sisko wakes up. The strange brain readings have vanished. 
and he's all right. His Dark Knight has passed, and he has decided to to finish the fight, stay with Starfleet. But part of him is still wondering if everything around him merely exists in the mind of Benny Russell, a man trapped in a world that won't see him as human. Dreaming of a time when equality for all races, colors, sexualities, and creeds is achievable. Dreaming of a future where that could be. Sometimes, I wish that too. But wishing, as Benny Russell said at the end, never changed a damn thing. Wow. Well, that's two and a half minutes over. But I'll take it. I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, it's quite the episode. I, I had, I, I had to, you know, like normally, as you may have guessed, most of my um, episode synopses are kind of just done by the seat of my pants. Mm-hmm. But I felt like I really wanted to actually write this down. Yeah. To kind of just get everything out. Oh, where do I start? Okay. Yeah. Um. So, Charlie. Hmm. Have you ever been accused of being a communist? Yeah, yeah, a few times. Yeah, same, yeah. I was um, unintentionally put in charge of the Young Socialists at um, Brighton University briefly. Uh, I turned up late, so they'd voted that I would be in, I'd be the person to lead it. So yeah, yeah, I've had, um, from early times... I've had people pointing those kind of things at me. I love the line, you know, you haven't been this sad since the day Joseph Stalin died. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, well, so I was watching this and I've seen it before once or twice a long time ago. I'm watching it and going, man, like these are actors in a science fiction network TV show. But they give they give mad men with this. Like they give proper like proper performances where you go like they could they could have they could own a prestige thing. I, I think all of the actors, especially the ones who definitely have more theatrical experience and TV experience, like Avery Brooks, um Armin Shimmerman and Rene Aubergenois, clearly love kind of getting into that sort of I really don't want to say David Mamet, but it is kind of that very that nineteen that nineteen fifties world of like suits and ties and respectability. I love that the the actor who plays um, General Martok turns up once or twice playing the artist yes. who does all who does the sketches, and he's clearly put some thought into how his character dresses to make him just look like this weird eccentric. He like he's got like the unlit stoogie and like the baseball coat, and he's immediately distinctive as a character. Like I think all. I think all the actors are really enjoying giving very different character performances than they're used to. Mm, like, I love how, while Armin Shimmerman plays, uh, was it Rossov, his his guy was still very, like, selfishly driven with the food. He's just very much on Benny's side, a very comfortable being very confrontational with, with Odo. All the kind of, like, writer characters are very loose analogs like um people equate um benny russell to the black queer sf writer samuel r delaney yeah um and and herbert russell is very clearly inspired by harl nelson who were both weren't part of this age of this immediate post-war age of sf they came into i think ellison was publishing in the late in the late 50s but the stuff he's going to get more famous for uh, along with Delaney, is very much the kind of 60s new wave science fiction where science fiction kind of went drifted away more from spaceships and ray guns and monsters 
and more into talking about inner space instead of outer space and going into more surreal, more political, more charged stories which would come up from the mid-60s into a good chunk of the 70s. Kalmini Mackie is very much a kind of like this this Nevish Asimov type who who likes writing stories. I loved how just kind of awkwardly Nevish. Oh, he was so good in that. Even, that's the thing, like, even at uh, his most kind of O'Brien, the put-upon transporter chief, he he isn't as as kind of weak and unassuming as as he is as Albert here. And mm. it feels like uh, Colmini's having some fun. Yeah, he, he's clearly not, he's, he's clearly playing as very much more sheltered, like, this very kind of reserved and less gregarious. Like, you know, he's definitely got that kind of, that that vibe um i think like the um k and julius eaton are based on cl moore and um henry kuttner mm. who are famous i don't how much of like this era of sf have you read like this kind of you know you've got your high lines you've got your asimovs and you've got your your brad breeze arthur c clark in the year the book is set so in the year this episode is set books novels that have been published were the demolished man um, I think Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke also came out this year, which, given a lot of the themes of that story, seems very surprising because it feels like a much later story than what we were getting, what they were getting. I've dipped in and out. I've read, I when I first started reading science fiction novels, which weren't Doctor Who target novelizations or Star Wars books of the 90s, um, I started off with Asimov. Yeah, same. And I didn't get to, I didn't read any Heinlein until my twenties. I'd read Starship Troopers when the film came out and just kind of over my head. Yeah, for me, a little bit of Heinlein and a bit more Bradbury. Mm. Um, but mostly Asimov for me for this kind of era of sci-fi. Like I as much as I enjoy a lot of the sci-fi of this era, I'm definitely more my tastes cut definitely do veer more to your new wave. Um, stuff like Dune, like the Michael Moore, like the Michael Moorcock uh, New Wave stuff of the six, like the Jerry Cornelius books. I've I think I've started and quit Dolgren by Samuel Delaney more times than any other book. Wow, um, it's been equated to Ulysses in it's almost just it's just so nearly unreadable in its denseness and love of language and Heinlein. I appreciate Heinlein. I think his prose dates his work terribly and any science fiction fan these days who claim that science fiction is too preachy and is basically a soapbox for the writer to express their political ideals and doesn't complain about Heinlein the same way is a goddamn hypocrite but this is not a miles talks about his um his reading for for like the last 40 years podcast <laughs> we're here to Although that was definitely a motivator for that was definitely motivator, <laughs> but I, I fucking love this episode. Yeah. So the plot hook, the kind of mechanic of, oh, which one is real? We know. We know which is real, and that's that's fine. Like the the philosophical exercise of the, you know, he is the dreamer in the dream, and you know his thought of is. Is he really Benny? Is obviously this is Cisco. I remember people talking about the Buffy episode where she led to believe that 
everything she did was not real that she's a real a normal person and undergoing some kind of break and hearing people go oh yeah wouldn't it be great if that was the case it's like well that's show over basically yeah and and in a fairly unsatisfying way it's it's show over Mm. Um, I've re- I know I've read in interviews that one of the ideas they mooted for like the ending of the last episode of DS9 was to have it turn out to have it turn out to be a TV show. It would cut to Benny Russell much older watching mm. the show Deep Space Nine being made and to show that his idea his dream and his idea became a reality. But they realized if we do that, I mean, that's Star Trek. We does. broke Star Trek. Yeah, or suddenly rendered that one, the whole section of Star Trek non-canon. You know, as much as I think a lot of people saw the end of Enterprise going, oh yeah, this was a holodeck thing. It it didn't render everything unreal with yeah. it all. It wasn't like, oh yeah, Riker just did four seasons of... Enterprise cosplay. That, that He did a LARP. He did an Enterprise LARP. Yeah, yeah, that would be weird. But yeah, this it feels like that's never never on the table and fine for that because we the audience know better than that and they and the writers and Avery himself as director aren't going to cheap it out on us. No. And Ah, but what if it really is kind of like I feel the reason why Cisco is having the visions are the, are the prophets telling him that he has to stay the course? Hmm. That the fight the fight is getting harder, but you have to keep walking the path, even if even if it hurts you, even if it takes your, even if it steals your friends, even if it literally has you on the floor as um as the villains break your bones and just beat you down. You have to keep fighting because you have to believe in in the dream you have and the values you uphold. Yeah, now. I don't know if we've met the captain who died or the Cortez and it doesn't it doesn't matter no. in this and that's like this does such a good job of going oh yeah we're you know 14 episodes through season 6 uh, shit's got rough and it's going to continue to be that way for a little while now of course you're going to have that existential crisis. It doesn't matter if it's someone we've seen a dozen times or it's just some guy who's just who was written just to give Cisco this crisis. Mm. It's that one. It's that one more death. Yes. It doesn't matter if it's a name, if it's like a regular character or not. To Cisco, it is you know, it's one more name on a list, which is getting bigger by the day. Well, I remember in the final season of Battlestar Galactica, there's a moment where one of the characters takes their own life oh, and it felt out of that. the blue but completely consistent of yeah at this point just fucking yeah it's so yeah. grim where they're at i remember that moment it's it's shocking yeah like she has the, like she has the nice date with her ex-husband you think everything's gonna be fine no 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 fuck yeah um and that's the thing like you can't do the serialized moment by moment story in in this era of Star Trek. It's no. still got to be single episodes, but this is representative of of that tipping point. You know, uh, this could have been the breaking of Cisco and seeing a similarly relentless, almost endless feeling battle, a battle which, sadly, as you say, we're still we still feel like 
has to be fought now. I I feel this this episode like we haven't mentioned him and talked about this, but I think Avery Brooks gives a performance, which I think is I like I, I just think back to like how much I love him in Emissary when he's breaking down and processing the death of his wife when he's forced to have to be relive it again and again. And just seeing how very much similar Benny is to Cisco, but just how different Benny is. Because with Cisco, you've seen the hardships, you've seen the joy. And whenever you see Benny, you just see a man who is is trying so desperately hard to not be broken by a world and society that wants him broken. Yeah. And yeah, in inspired use of Mark Alomo and Jeffrey Combs as, as the cops with just that perfect sinister energy, getting the villains to be the villains here. Um, well, kind of obvious at the same time, it's lovely seeing Jeffrey Combs without the makeup in a Star Trek. Yeah. And yeah, just that energy, like the, the utter tension of oh. them interacting with Benny. It, it feels so uncomfortable. These are the parts of the episode which I think have unfortunately aged well. Um, as, we've, as we've seen the discussion about racism in American policing and racism in, in Western policing. I mean, we can't... Sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to briefly get on a soapbox. Okay. Um, as someone who's lived both in the UK and the US... I, I am unfortunately aware of how both systems are broken. And I feel like in the UK, we have used America as a scapegoat to get away from our own problems by every, like, you know, because it seems like every time something gets brought up about the British government, about British policing, about the institutionalized racism that has existed in the, in the, US, in the British police world, and something we've been aware of since like the 90s, that mm. the media will just go, but look at those assholes over in America. We're clearly fine and we're clearly not. Just those scenes and just the quiet, intense fury you have in Benny at the beginning when he's bringing up W.E. Dubois and other successful African-American writers, a lot of whom came out of the Harlem Renaissance, yeah, which is a, like I think it was in the 1930s, which was this huge African-American art movement based in Harlem in in that time where you had a lot of new literature, new art, and you have Pabst, who I think is the most despicable character of all in this, because he just, he has both contempt for for Benny and all of Benny's struggles and also the audience, the audience of the magazine he claims to be publishing. He's, he's a job's worth. Yeah. Like he is Odo. F Odo just cared about the job. He doesn't care. You know, he doesn't care who's given the orders. He is the Odo who would collaborate unashamedly with Descartes. He is the Odo who would have given Kira over because Descartes, the man in charge, he takes the orders. Yes. God. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's fascinating to see, and just that horror of how easy that complicity is. And, and to go, don't get me wrong, I want change, I just won't do anything to do with it. And It's the same argument we're having today. Yeah. When people are, com when people are complaining about, tra about trans activists, about like, people protesting the, the violence of the police. It's that one comment people have about centrists, which is people say that, you know, centrists will say that both sides 
have their problems and that both sides are wrong, but they will inevitably side with the oppressors and not with the oppressed. Mm. This would be the most fun. This would be the most fun Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's it's fascinating to see all of this. I so oddly enough, my watching of Riverdale. <laughs> they kind of so imagine this sort of story, but instead of Avery Brooks, it's Jughead Jones. Oh God. Yeah, and and it works. Oh. Let me guess, is this about the censorship of the Comics Code Authority and its treatment of EC in the horror comics? No, no, this is after that. This is, no, this is about having a black protagonist in a science fiction story. (laughs) You what, mate? I was like, oh, oh, so Jughead's going to fix that. (laughs) Yes, Jughead Jones will fix racism in America. Well, he kind of, like gets the comet to prominence which then veronica is able to use hollywood connections to make into a film with a science fiction film about a black man and a white woman who fall in love and a comet and space travel and all of this and it's like okay okay well again they they've got a, a, a strict clock to go on kind of cover every single story every what five ten minutes they turn over another one I feel bad that we've not mentioned um, the the Dax analog, who is the um, the secretary, oh, yeah. who is very is portrayed as very kind of ditzy, but she has that great line. She has a slug in her belly. That's disgusting, fascinating, but disgusting. Well, yeah, it's it's that thing of she acts very kind of like a bit of a ditz, but also has the knowledge. Yeah, you know, sci fi wise with all of this Matt, stuff. Matt, it's, it's it's almost like. Um, Women can be fans of science fiction. What? I know. Wow. Like, I... Oh, God. I could probably... I don't know. I think you can go on about this episode for a lot. Mm. But it's... It, I think it comes down to that that final speech, that final breakdown with, with Benny Russell, with Avery Books, which I think sums up so much of what the science fiction's potential can achieve. Yeah. How sadly it falls short of reality because one line from from Jimmy, which is white people only want us in space just to shine their shoes. This is how you change a society that you you present an, you present an idea and you you make you fight to make the idea a reality. That's where sometimes you can end up disappointed with the real side of things, you know, with Marvel going oh yeah we've got a lot more inclusive characters we've got all of these kind of things you've still got a guy in charge that pretended to be a japanese man still got i remember with the fall of x lineup how very male it was you know you, you look at dc's new 52 and again very similar sorts of things where if you're a white guy that was mates with bob harris in the 90s then you've got a job you've or like i would say something like the the jody whittaker era of doctor who I love Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor. I wish she had gotten better material. Yeah. But for all the ways people complain that, oh, the Doctor's a woman, that means the show's woke now. It's still a show created and written predominantly by a white guy who seems to think that just having the Doctor be a woman is enough and just doesn't really do more. As much as the character's like the story here and they and they they side with benny when push comes to shove benny's alone mm. as much as they all kind of protest that perhaps 
which I couldn't keep hearing the name and not think of the of the beer, Pabst Blue Ribbon. Same. It's just, yeah. Um, as much as they present the ideas and agree, they will only they will only stand up so far. They mm. won't walk the walk. So, Miles, think it's probably a good time for us to scroll the hell up on this list and have a look at where this goes. Oh my! Because fuck, it's a good episode, and it's that thing of it's it's a very good episode. It is very much its own beast, away from a lot of the Star Trek things, while also being very much the heart of what what star trek can be i think this is that rare occurrence where it's an episode where it's essentially talking about it's i think it's one of the few times star trek gets meta Mm. because it's using an episode of star trek to talk about all the good that star trek claims to have done and has tried to do and that's its own conversation given that it took like the 21st century to have a queer character in star trek and it took us till deep space nine to have like a non-white leading man yeah. Whereas, like, we talk about how Star Trek has polit- has political messaging in it. It's this one, the politics is the story, is the message of what science fiction Star Trek can achieve. It's it's a meta-commentary of what you can do with science fiction. Definitely. So, like, oh my god, I don't... This is where it's often tricky, going, oh, this is really good. Oh, no, I have to judge it against other things. Because, like, this is, this is a fantastic story. It's a fantastic, like, TV play. Mm. it's just like is it is it star trek does does far beyond the stars exemplify star trek as much as say the wrath of khan or emissary or balance of terror like mm. is see that's where i'd i'd say you know, even the pilot of strange new worlds is that is a pure unit of star trek yes you know it sure some of it may be you know it's very tv pilot kind of stuff but it is it is a star trek from tip to toe and this is this is incredibly good but yeah it's how to how to weigh up those two levels really of of star trekness and importance and quality you know if you compare this to strange new worlds which do you think is better I don't know what criteria do you judge it do you judge it as like a piece of fiction or do you judge it as a piece of star trek Yes, basically. It's it's that balance of both. And like the the thing is, you know, essentially our list is us playing top trumps with yeah. two separate episodes of go and basically going, right, balance of terror, strange new worlds, which one wins? And the answer was balance of terror, number three, you know, TOS episode eight, season one, um, ranked number three on the big list. And I think deservingly so still. Yeah. And it this is just kind of like, you know, Part of me just wants to go, right, we have a new number one. Star Trek Africana didn't last long, but it's just like, is that as a unit of Star Trek or as a unit of of storytelling? TV, yeah. Yeah, and I think it is that thing of, you know, the reason Trouble with Tribbles is so high in our, our number eight spot currently is because it is important to Star Trek as a whole rather than necessarily a good a good thing because otherwise the motion picture might might have beaten it yeah but it didn't it didn't uh, yeah i mean that's where it's difficult like i've probably seen both the strange new worlds pilot and far beyond the stars about the same amount of times each and both are very good like this is higher quality of of television definitely 
It's just if someone needed to know what Star Trek was, I have a a single episode I could go, that is a Star Trek. I am not having this be like one of the first episodes of Deep Space Nine my wife sees. Because I feel like you need to have had the context of the characters. Because I also think like the actors who, the actors they have playing the respective analogs is in some ways deliberate. And I feel like you have them be reflections of themselves, even if Nanar Visitor and Sadik Elf and Alexander Siddig are kind of just there in the background. And I think like the joke in that one is that at the time those two actors were married in real life. So they're playing the two science fiction writers who are famously married. And the the secretary is just there because, oh, we need to give Terry Farrell a role to play. Yeah. Okay, I have one last bit of trivia. Uh Brock Peters, who plays the preacher and Joseph Sisko has played Darth Vader. What? National Public Radio did radio dramatizations of the original three Star Wars films. The only actor who crossed over was Mark Hamill playing Luke. And this was like in the early 80s. And they had Brock Peters uh, play the voice of Darth Vader. Brock Peters has also been in To Kill a Mockingbird. Wow. Quite a pedigree then. But that's my last bit of trivia, just to kind of... Like, part of me almost wants to go, I don't think Far Beyond the Stars can be properly fit on the list. It's almost its own thing. And I feel to put it, to kind of put it on the list, either, or just to compare, like, you know, we've got, we've got House of Quark on here. We do. Shockingly high. If you go, which is better, you kind of go, man, this feels trivial. (laughs) I think having Far Beyond the Stars on the list breaks our list. But at the same time, you know, we are on our road to 100. Oh, yeah. Fresh all the weights. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we've said it on the show, but when the 100th episode of Star Trek we're going to review will be Threshold, will be Warp 11 Salamander Sex. Hell, yeah. So, yeah, I... Oh, God, okay. Okay, I think where you were looking at with strange new worlds like just above or just under like balance of terror is again a perfect unit of a star trek and it gets us romulans it gets us you know i i think i'm good with this for the time being number five under strange new worlds but okay what do you think better worse than strange new worlds top five is still a very good showing oh, yes cause and like cause and effects just under it in the current five slot and that is an amazing episode of tng like we are not belittling this episode no but i think strange new worlds pilot is possibly more star trek in in that regard you know it kind of as much as i like discovery Strange New Worlds was the one that got a lot of people sitting up and, and listening and going, oh shit, it's back. Yeah. Oh wow. Oh, this is, you know, we've had Discovery go try a bit prestige stuff. We've had Picard go way too far trying to do that. And then suddenly, oh, this is resurrected. Yeah. The spirit, the soul of it. And yeah, this is an amazing episode of DS9. Ultimately, as you say, it is not the one that you would say is your first episode. And it would lose something as much as some of the elements are nods, like Odo and Quark's dynamic being put to Pabst and Roscoff. The the cops being played by like the villains of the show. 
Yeah. Although that that's that said, having like uh, Kai Win be one of the cops would have been hilarious. Oh god, that would have been good fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm shocked she didn't end up in something in some role there. They had, I think they had all the roles that you've got. Michael Dawn is clearly loving not being in makeup. It was so nice to see him in a nice mood. You know, Michael Dawn's a lovely guy anyway, and to see him actually being there and all like happy and cheerful rather than kind of stunned Klingon. Like you also see his character is like a big, like famous baseball player, but they won't let him move into a white neighborhood despite how popular he is. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, um Jake's actor having evidently having a lot of fun being a real scumbag. Do you know who was clearly having fun? Mm. Um, the actor who plays Nog. Oh, yes. Playing the newsy. Yes. Playing the newspaper guy. Just, just gonna do that kind of Brooklyn act, that Brooklyn accent. Science fiction, I don't get it myself. <laughs> Watching them all have a lot of fun with hamming it up in their roles, you know? Everyone's having fun. I don't really think anyone's kind of hamming it up. Sorry, yeah. Giving it their all, I guess, is the sensible version of that. I, I think, I think the term hamming it up is just has been given too many connotations because we people kind of assume that like going big is somehow going bad yeah i think it's shatner's fault let's blame shatner let's blame shatner okay i would love if that was named for our christmas episode let's blame shatner and he'll be mentioned like once <laughs> <laughs> at the very end well let's also blame shatner for necessary evil being on here as well you know that was a good thing. It was a good episode. But um, yeah, that is very much Shatner's fault yeah. for uh, Tech War. Yep. <laughs> All right. Okay. So number five. There we go. Number five. It's such a good episode. And yeah, one of those ones that definitely bears revisiting. And, cons and just considering like the themes and ideas of the story. Oh, yes. So with that, we've managed to make talk about two episodes carry on into about the length of three episodes <laughs> but, um, so yes um we will we will fill that time um no matter what anyway we've got christmas to go to and hopefully so have you or you know whatever festival you want to enjoy or just enjoy some time off work so uh, next time, we're going to be celebrating the new year by saddling up and heading out to the Wild West. And I am doing finger guns while I'm saying that. Yeehaw, partner. Yeah, so if you like what we do, please head on to our Kofi page and sling us some gold press latinum. And in return, we'll build an episode of a show based around your choice of Star Trek episode or even a general theme. Outside of that, you can find us on Blue Sky as Casual Trek and on the Nerd and Tie forums as well. And uh, Miles, where can we find you? You can find me on my blog on www.marelobato.wordpress.com. And Charlie, where can they find you? Why, I'm able to be found on fakedtales.com and on skyshark.itch.io, where I put some creative things occasionally. He also spends a lot of time posting X-Men comics, but... It's not really a good era for X-Men, so, you know, come back later. Yeah, God, but when this airs, on Christmas, no less, I'll probably be uh, posting online 
about X-Men Fantastic Four by acclaimed comic writer Akira Yoshida. I wonder what happened to that guy. (laughs) On that note, that's it from us and from Akira Yoshida. And enjoy your time off. And um, And happy holidays. Go to a Starfleet, live long, and have a mince pie. Hmm, I think I will. You've been listening to Casual Trek by Charlie Etheridge Nunn and Miles Reed Lobato. Music by Alfred Etheridge Nunn. Casual Trek's part of the Nerd and Time Network. And if you want to support us monetarily, because you love what we do that much, you can now do that by going to Coffee and looking up Casual Trek. There's a link in the show notes.